Take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans 5. That's where we're going to be this morning for just a little bit, Romans 5. Take out your worship guide and the handout there if you'd like to follow along in the notes. And also, if you'd like to really follow along, uh, you can pick up a book out in our lobby by this same title, Real Christianity. It's a book that was written by a pastor friend of mine, Carrie Schmidt. And so that is what has inspired this series. And so every week we are touching upon some of the things covered in that book. But most importantly, we're going back to the book. I tell folks all the time, you know you found a good book when it points you back to the book, the Word of God. And so that's what we're doing here this summer. This is a great tool that you can give to a new believer as they get started in their Christian walk. In fact, you might be here and say, I've been saved just for a short time. What would be a great tool that I could uh, pick up and really learn what the Christian life is all about? Well, this book would be one of those great tools, that I, and I would encourage you to do that. Find a friend here in the church, and they can go through that with you every week, and that would be a great study to be discipled through. Well, Romans chapter 5 is where we're going to be, and if you have it there, we're going to be in verses 12 through 21. If you don't have a physical copy of the Word, pull it up there on your smartphone. We live in the age of instant information, so you should be able to pull, the, pull it up there. Just Google Romans 5, 12 through 21, and follow along with us. Let's read this passage together. Verse 12, it says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin... And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed or counted when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude or the likeness of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. Now, just reading in these first three verses, you're probably like, whoa, this is heavy theological stuff. Uh, the, uh, uh, and, and if you uh, have never read this passage, or maybe it's been a while since you've read it, it, it can be, you can almost read it and start to go off into zone out mode because it's, this is heavy stuff. What Paul is unpacking basically here is all of human history in just a few verses. And he's saying that Adam was this representative for the entire human race. Our best chance was in Adam, and he was placed in this garden. And if, and if we know the stories of the Bible in Genesis, we know that Adam and Eve failed. They sinned against God, and because of Adam's sin, all of creation fell into sin. Now, before you say, well, that's not fair, I didn't get a shot. Did you sin this week? The reality is, all of us have sinned. And come short of the glory of God. And so sometimes when you read this, some, sometimes folks might come away and say, well, that's not fair. I didn't get to pick my representative. No, here's, here's good news. God picked our representative, and he was our best shot at succeeding, and he failed. And if you ever doubt that he was our best shot, just look in the mirror, because we're no better than Adam. We, we've fallen as well. And so that's the point of what Paul is unpacking here. He's saying, listen, um, Adam... Uh, wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and because of that sin, death. So death is passed upon all men for the all of sin. Let's pick it up in verse 15. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For through the offense of one, many be dead, much more the grace of God. And the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift... For the judgment was by one to condemnation, 
but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. Again, we can stop for a moment and I can explain these verses. What God's basically saying is, yes, one man brought death, but much more another man is going to bring life everlasting. So you can really boil down these first several verses to this point. There's two representatives for the human race, Adam and Jesus Christ. In Adam, all die. In Christ, all shall be made alive. And so there's these two, and this is a phrase that theologians use. It's called federal headship, federal representation. Adam represents the entire human race. And what God is unpacking here is that in Jesus Christ, you can have a new representative. Praise God. You can have someone stand for you, and you can take part in that great exchange that we read about at the beginning of the service. In him, he knew no sin, but he was made sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Let's keep reading. Verse 17. Paul, uh, Paul continues here. Paul's the writer of this uh, letter to the Romans, and he says, For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Again, do you see what he's doing? One brings death, one brings life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners in Adam, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But praise God, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Have you noticed in this passage now, three times, God has said, much more. It's as if he wants us to get it. No matter what sin you might have done, nothing can outmatch or outlast the grace of God for you. Much more the grace of God. Much more abound. Verse 21, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. May God bless the reading of his word. Will you bow with me for a word of prayer? Father, only you can open hearts and eyes to the truth that we just read. So, Father, I ask you to do through the power of your Holy Spirit what I can't. That today our hearts would be awakened to the greatest news ever given to mankind. That in you we have much more. We have a super abundance of your grace. And that that word is beautiful. It's matchless. It's marvelous. It's infinite. We can't talk about it enough. So many times we hear the simple news of the gospel and we go to work trying to complicate it. I pray that today we would see that the grace of God is the power to save, but it's also the power to shape and mold our lives. Father, bless me as I share this brief message from your word and as we review some of the thoughts that we've been sharing over these last several weeks. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What was your favorite subject in school? How many math whizzes do we have out there? Raise your hand if math was your favorite subject. All right, everybody look at those people 
and say, uh, no, we love you. We're thankful for you. We're thankful that you could tutor us. I was not a math whiz. As you know, I love science, and I was probably science and history were almost on an equal footing as far as my favorite, because in science, you got to blow stuff up and cut stuff apart, and in history, you got to look at, uh, you know, just all the different um, uh, parts of human history, whether it was the Revolutionary War. Um, often in history class, I would find myself daydreaming. How many of you are like me in history class? You found yourself daydreaming, and you actually were trying to place yourself in those periods of time that you were studying. I, I, would have always, I thought it would have always been cool to, uh, to live during the times of the Revolution and, and uh, the founding of our nation. And it would have been cool to hear Paul Revere writing, the British are coming, the British are coming, or to know George Washington, to be his neighbor. Wouldn't that be cool? Of course, at that point, we wouldn't have known that's the George Washington. But it would have just been interesting to live at those times. Certainly, um, uh, Bible history is, is fascinating. Uh, I've had the wonderful privilege. The Lord has spoiled me. I've been able to go to the Holy Land three times now. And every time I go, I wonder what it would have been like to be there in the first century and in those times of the Bible, to live at the time of Jesus. And so history has always been something that has intrigued me. Uh, I love to get on YouTube and look at those old photos of New York City, and they do a time lapse from like the very first buildings all the way up to modern day. That's always fascinating to look at. Um, there's probably another part of history that I enjoy uh, as, as much, and that is when I went to Bible college to study for the ministry, I really became intrigued and fascinated with church history. And in church history, uh, many of you, whether you're a church historian or not, you've probably heard, if you've grown up in church, you've heard of this name, and that is Martin Luther. Martin Luther. And Martin Luther was very famous for about 500 years ago being involved in a very pivotal moment in church history where uh, the church, of course, at that point, and we use the word church loosely, uh, the church was very much institutionalized and run by the state and um, just a lot of paganism in the church, a lot of dead religion. We've been talking about that here in this series about how uh, systems don't save you, a person saves you. And so many times churches get caught up in these dead systems of religion, and certainly Luther was that. He was a, um, he was a Roman Catholic monk who was gloriously awakened to the truth of the gospel while studying this book that we just read, Romans. Now, he, he was reading Romans chapter 1, verse 17, where it says, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And when he read that, it's like, and of course in his writings, he, he basically says that it's like the, uh, the darkened dungeon of his soul burst forth with light. And his eyes were open to the simplicity of the gospel. Because you see, for Martin Luther, he had gone into a monastery because he was trying to work his way to heaven. He was trying to earn God's grace. He was trying to get in God's good graces and stay in God's good graces. You ever heard those phrases before? Stay in God's good grace? Well, that's what he was trying to do. He was trying to, you know, fast for 40 days. Literally, Luther was so hard on himself. He tortured himself so much that there were times when he literally went out in the middle of winter totally unclothed and lay in the snow until he was almost dead and his buddies had to drag him back in because he was so um, burdened over his sin, he didn't know what to do with it. And so Luther here, 
reads this verse in Romans 1.17, and for the first time, it's like he sees what's been there the whole time. I don't know how many times he had read Romans 1.17 before that. But it's like for the first time, Luther sees this verse and he gets the simplicity of the gospel that righteousness is actually given to us. We cannot earn it. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, that we're saved, but according to his mercy and grace that he saves us. For by grace are you saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. That's what Luther was trying to do. He was trying to earn it by crawling out in the snow, unclothed in the middle of winter. He was trying to fast for 40 days to earn something that could never be earned. It could only be received as a gift. And what we're going to see today in our study is that God seeks to make our vision clear to the scope and magnitude of his marvelous, wonderful, limitless grace. Unfortunately, as I mentioned, the good news is so amazing and so simple that the moment man receives it, he seeks to begin complicating it and contorting it into a system again. It's like we know systems don't save us, but the moment we receive the Savior, we try to turn them into a system. And that's what, this is the constant battle in our life, because the systems look spiritual, but they're actually fleshly and carnal. They're not spiritual. You see, salvation is about a person, not a process, not a system. It's about a person knowing him, enjoying him, adoring him, following him. And so we are reminded today that Jesus isn't a dead system. He is a living Savior. And when we see him for who he truly is, the only response is reverence, adoration, and consecration in worship before him. The title of the message today is simply Reducing Grace. And we're going to be going back to Romans 5 here and looking at some of the thoughts here. The purpose of our short study today is that understand, we, 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 we must understand our sin and its reality, rejoice in the fullness of God's grace, and learn this paradox of resting, resting in and enjoying Jesus even as we wrestle with the world, the flesh, and the devil, all right? And so uh, the first thought I want you to see here is this. Sin is worse than we think. Now, this is a little bit of a review from last Sunday. So if you missed last Sunday, you're about to get last Sunday's message in five minutes, all right? Uh, Last Sunday, we looked at how oftentimes we seek to reduce our sin or to minimize it. But like we said with this illustration, I had this illustration last week, and I wanted to leave it up here and show it to you again if I can get it off of here. Whenever you go into a jewelry store, the jeweler just doesn't show you a diamond like this. They always pull out the black velvet and show you the diamond contrasted against the black velvet, right? Because without the exceeding blackness of the black velvet, the fire of the diamond doesn't sparkle as much as it would or could. And what we did last week is we tried to show you the exceeding wrongness of our sin, the wickedness of our sin, how black it is, how, how deadly it is, uh, and, and, and how so many times we try to minimize it or treat it with our own systems. And the only person that can deal with it is Jesus. And so we talked about last week how we cannot really appreciate God's beautiful, wonderful, matchless, marvelous grace unless we understand how desperate we were, how desperate we were. And so sin is worse than we think. Sin is worse 
than we think. As, as I mentioned last week, we said this, sin is a condition, it's not merely a behavior. Now, last week I said it a little differently. I said, it's not just a doing problem, it's a being problem. It's a being problem. And you see that here in this passage. Look back at Romans 5 with me, if you would. Here in Romans 5, verse 12, it says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And as you read this passage, what you find out is that sin, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. That sounds like it's a semantic word game, but it makes all the difference in the world understanding the source and the reason for sin and what the only remedy for sin is. Because, see, so much of religion says in order to get right and earn God's good graces, you have to stop sinning. Uh, well, that's what Martin Luther tried. He, he tried to become righteous in his own strength because he thought that righteousness was something that he did. No, righteousness is something that God gives. He imputes to us a new nature and a new desire to want to live for him. And ultimately what God has to do is give to us a new being, to be born again. That's what Jesus talks about over and over in the Word. So sin is a condition. It's not merely a behavior. This is why moral conformity is useless. Morality is just as dead as immorality is without Christ, the source and the foundation of all life. Uh, so many times people say, well, I'm going to turn over a new leaf for God. The problem with turning over a, trying to turn over a new leaf is it's the same old dead leaf. Your leaf is dead. And so what we need is not a new leaf for God. We need a new life in God, in Christ. And that makes all the difference when your eyes are open to that reality, that, 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 that salvation is not about you turning over a new leaf for God. Salvation is about God imparting a new life in you, and then everything becomes new. So sin is a condition, not merely a behavior. And this is really what Paul's laying out here. I mean, he lays out in the first several passage, uh, several verses, this is a condition. It's not just something you're doing. It's something you are. Without Christ, you were, you are a sinner without Christ. And so sin is a condition. It's not merely a behavior. Number two, sin is death in us. Look at verse 12 again. It says, so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. Verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. And so death, sin is death in us. It's not merely a temporary sickness. No, it's terminal, like we said last week with cancer. And so many times people will get that report that they've got cancer and then they... It, it's like they pretend that it doesn't exist, and somehow if they pretend, it'll go away. Remember I told you the story about Steve Jobs, the CEO of Apple, the inventor of your iPhone. And now he was diagnosed several years before he died, and he waited to get a, a much-needed surgery over nine months. And because of that wait, he probably lost his life very early because he didn't take the seriousness of the issue before him. And so many times that's how we are. We, we think sin is just this little thing. It's a little issue. No, it's a major issue. It's death in us. Sin resists God, defies his authority, resents his rule, and rebels against his law. Sin is that which leads us to be our own gods, pursue our own needs, perpetuate our own kingdoms, and please our own desires. 
Sin replaces God, dethroning him and enthroning self. Sin drives us away from God, separates us from him, and places us at enmity with him. It says in Romans 8, verse 7, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. But when we get the new man, we, we delight after the law of God in the inward man. Romans 7, Paul says this. He says, I know that I delight in the law of God. And what's the law of God? It's to love him and to love others, to, to uh, love who God is, to love those around us, to serve them. And of course, love is the fulfilling of the old law. And so sin is death in, in us, and we are enemies of God. But praise God that God would lay down his life for his enemies that he would lay down his life for us, even that while we were yet sinners, Christ would die for us. So, so sin is worse than we think. And then finally, sin is in me. So, so sin is a condition, not a behavior. Sin is death in us, and sin is in me. It's in me. Sin is in me, but praise God, if you know Jesus, it's no longer of you. What do I mean by that? Well, sin still dwells in our mortal bodies, and we're going to deal with the flesh for the rest of our lives. And that's what's packed, uh, unpacked in that chapter 6 of the book. If you read it this week, is that you'll see that what he's laying out is that there is this ongoing wrestling with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so sin is still in us, but praise God, sin is no longer of us. We have a new nature. We have a new man. And that new man delights to follow God, wants God. And so thus there's this war. <laughs> Thus, there's this wrestling going on, and praise God for that. That's an evidence that we are born again, that we're His. And so sin is a big deal. I don't want us to miss that today. Sin is worse than we think. It's a big deal. But here's the point. As you see Paul lay it out here, yes, sin's a big deal. Yes, sin is a condition, not just a behavior. It's death in us. It's in us. And if we don't know Christ yet, it's of us. So no wonder we just do it all the time. But here's the point. Sin's a big deal, but God's greater. Our sin is a big deal, but the whole point of this passage is God is greater. And three times he wants you to get it, much more. Will you say that out loud with me? One, two, three, much more. Oh, come on, you can do better than that. I know, I know my voice is just so velvety soft. You're like lulling into a sleep there. One, two, three, are you ready? Much more. It's like God is trying to point out, yes, sin's a big deal. Don't diminish it. Don't reduce it. But don't stop there. Because what you see, what you see is that Jesus, number two, is better than we think. Jesus is better than we think. It's only when we recognize the true condition of sin that we see the exceeding riches of his grace. It's only when you realize how bankrupt you were that when you're given the eternal riches of God at Christ's expense, wow, you were a beggar and now you are a child of the king. And so Jesus is better than we think. Yes, sin is worse than we think. And Paul lays that out here. But what he's going to show us is, is that, number two, Jesus is better than we think. Yes, we're worse than we think, but praise God that God's love revealed in his son Jesus is greater and far better than we could ever think. For God so loved the world that he gave us Jesus, his only son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. 
honestly, honestly, when we see our sin for what it is, we know we're condemned. We know we're hopeless. We know we're broken. We know we're bankrupt. When we have our eyes open to the exceeding sinfulness of our sin, we know it. And what we need is we need rescue. And that's what God offers us to his, in, in his son, Jesus Christ. God loves us equally through all of the winning in our life, the losing and the trying. He loves us patiently through all of our silly games that we play with ourselves and, and uh, try to focus on self, self-centered growth projects. He, he loves us even when we love our self-improvement more than him. What does that mean? Sometimes we get caught up with our own self-improvement and we forget that this is all about God. He loves us unconditionally. He loves us infinitely. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he loves you unconditionally, that he loves you infinitely, that he loves you perfectly without measure, grace unmeasured, vast and free, that knew me from eternity? I love this old hymn. Listen to these words. Listen to these words from this old, beautiful hymn about the love of God in Jesus Christ. It says, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies a parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry if they were ink, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forever endure the saints and angels' song. You know why sometimes the love of God doesn't amaze us as it should? Because we're loving our self-improvement. I'm doing pretty good. Look at me. Oh, the love of self always seeks to dethrone the love for God. That's exactly what the first sin was all about. Loving self, worried about self, worried about becoming like God when they were already children of God, Adam and Eve, born and made in his image. And so if the love of God doesn't continue to wow us, we've left our first love. No wonder the church is lukewarm. Because when they hear the love of God, they look at you with a sideways, sideways glance, like, oh, what are you really talking about? You must be a closet sinner. No, I just know how great my sin is, regardless of if it's an outward behavior or an inward motivation. The love of God, Jesus, God's love is better than we think. We could never do anything or behave in any way that can make Jesus, make Jesus love us any more than he already does. Ooh, that's tough for us, because we were born into conditionality. We were born into thinking that if I do certain things, I'll get more of God's love. Now, I'm not saying that when we don't do things right, that God's, God's not disappointed by that, that it doesn't grieve God's heart. Paul says that we grieve the Holy Spirit when we live in the flesh as saints. It doesn't match our new nature. But what I'm saying is, is that Jesus' love for us doesn't waver. It doesn't go up and down like human love does. 
We could never offer him anything that he doesn't already have. You see, God's not needy. He doesn't need things from us, but he has everything to give to us. Yesterday, just to illustrate this love a little bit, I can't help but think about love. And uh, if y'all know, uh, my wife and I celebrated our 17th wedding anniversary yesterday. Man, that has gone by fast, honey. I was looking at that wedding photo yesterday, and she was t- saying something to me there as they were, we were getting our picture taken. I love that picture. And I thought about love. You know, love is the ultimate motivator for true transformation. My wife would tell you that there are some things about me that she would like to see changed. And she might have tried for several years to change certain things about me, right, honey? What I'm so thankful for is she loves me unconditionally. She chooses to love me sacrificially, even in spite of my failures and and, and my flaws. Raise your hand if you're thankful for a spouse who sees the worst of you and still loves you. Raise your hand. My wife um, has realized that she can try to change me, but wives and, 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 and husbands both, because I think, I think this goes both ways. <laughs> it was so cute. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I saw a post from one of our newlyweds about chewing and how one spouse chews louder than the other, and that gets on their nerves, and they would like to change that. Um, but what my wife and I have learned a little bit is that the greatest motivator for us to grow and be transformed in our marriage is to keep on funneling, keep on giving each other unconditional, sacrificial, measureless love. When I truly believe that I'm loved, there's something that springs up and sparks up inside of me that wants to change. And as I look at my wife and I look at the love that we have for, for one another for 17 years, here's the point. Adoration is greater than obligation. When you adore God because you realize how much he adores you, you see, true selfless love can't help but be reciprocated. When someone gives to you in such a selfless way and you see what Jesus did for you, you can't help. I mean, we love him because he what? First loved us. Adoration is greater than obligation. And so love is the ultimate motivator for true transformation. We can't talk about it enough. The the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.14, for the love of Christ constrains us. The love of Christ motivates, shapes us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. God's love, God's grace is the greatest motivator Grace does not motivate us to sin or abuse grace unless we don't understand it. And so Jesus is better than we think. Sin is worse than we think. Jesus is better than we think. And finally, grace is greater than we think. Paul here in Romans chapter 5, he lays out the reality of sin, that it's a condition, that's death in us, it's in us. Then he points to this one man, verse 15, Jesus Christ. Read the end of that just to summarize that second point, that Jesus is better. It says, In the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, has abounded to many. And so Jesus Christ and his love for us is better than we could ever imagine. And then finally we see here that God shows us that his grace is greater than we could ever imagine. 
I love this quote from chapter 6 of the book as uh, Carrie was expounding upon these verses. He says this about grace. He says, Grace, God's unconditional acceptance and love, is the only environment in which true spiritual transformation can unfold. Grace is the single greatest motivator for genuine love-based obedience and faith in action. Let me read that again. Grace is the single greatest motivator for genuine love-based obedience and faith in action. Our struggle is we don't believe that. Because we've lived our whole lives thinking, okay, the way we get people to change and obey is fear. Fear. Now, you have, and here's what's crazy about that. You have the entire Old Testament that had that as a motivator. If you didn't follow the law, you were dead. How well did Israel do at following the law with that motivator? Not well. And if you, if you can read the Old Testament and not be honest about that, then we, we, we can't see what's right in front of us. Israel did not do well at that. But what you see, and I've shared this story before, but what you see is that grace is a greater motivator. What I love is Luke 19 and the story of the little short man, Zacchaeus. The guy who was known as a town cheat. He was the tax collector. Uh-oh, yeah, that's a good, that'd be a good sermon. Tax collecting and cheating, huh? Um, anyway, yeah, this guy was a tax collector. He collected for the Roman government, and he took more than he should have. He stole from people. He was hated, and Jesus showered him with grace. And at the end, you see the evidence of grace motivating Zacchaeus because he says, Lord, I'll restore fourfold. Here's what's so fascinating about that story. The law only required a twofold restoration from stealing from someone. And Zacchaeus said, four. See, the law is not a greater motivator than love is. Love motivates greater than the law ever could. And so grace is the single greatest motivator. The problem is, is that we don't give grace enough time to motivate. We're like, well, it should have already happened, you see, because grace is a greenhouse, and, and so people grow at different speeds, and you have to be patient with that growth. And that's what you see with Jesus. He was patient with people's growth and understanding him. He, he, he was just, he defies our understanding in so many ways. Grace is the only climate in which God's work can unfold and in which the Spirit of God can produce real fruit to His glory. I think so many of us just settle for fake fruit because it looks good on the outside, but we, but, but we don't let people get close enough to really inspect it. A lot of our Christian life is just lived with the externals, look good, act good, you know, and, and we put on a good show, and the fruit looks tasty from a distance, but it's not real. But real fruit takes time, it takes nourishing, it takes being sourced in the right uh, soil. Grace is not us trying, as I said earlier, it's not us trying to turn over a new leaf for Jesus. Grace is Jesus extending new life in and from him. He is the vine. We're the branches. Are we abiding in him? And so this grace is greater than we think. It is mighty grace. But so many times we seek to diminish this grace and to question something that's so wonderful. How do we reduce God's grace, grace and diminish its impact? How do we do that? Two thoughts. And these aren't in your notes, but you might want to jot them down there in the space provided. How do we diminish God's grace and this, his mighty grace? How do we reduce God's grace to try to measure something that God says is unmeasured and limitless? Number one, we reduce God's grace when we think that someone doesn't deserve it. 
or shouldn't have it. As I mentioned, for some of us, conditionality is so woven into our brains that it's hard for us to accept that God loves the world. We just gloss right over that verse because we've said it a hundred times. But do we realize how inclusive that is? Oh, there's one of those buzzwords I shouldn't be using. But, but actually, it's John 3.16. God so loved the world. That means Jew, Gentile, heathen, religious. He loves them all because as you study the Gospels, you find out the religious were more lost than the... Because they really weren't saved. They had the system, but they didn't have the Savior. How do we reduce grace? We reduce grace when we think there's people who don't deserve it. When we think, well, that's just not fair. See, God doesn't operate on our ideas of fairness. He deals with his creation in the only way that there is a hope for any of them, and that is grace. But the problem is, is that the underlying thought behind the thought that we don't think some people should have it, here's the other underlying fallacy in our thinking when we think that. We think we do deserve it. When you say that there's a group of people that don't deserve it, what you're really saying is, but I do. Isn't that funny? Isn't that interesting how we're so harsh on others, but we're really easy on ourselves? We don't, some, how do we reduce it when we think that some people shouldn't have it? And what we're saying by, by, by the fact that we think we do is what we're really saying is, is Jesus, I really wasn't all that bankrupt. Jesus, I really wasn't all that broken. I just need a little 1% extra kick from you. I just need a little Jesus kick. Not trying to be disrespectful to the Lord today, but that's how we live when we say that there's some people who don't deserve it. God so loved mm, the world. You see, most men will proclaim everyone his own goodness, but a faithful man who can find Proverbs 20, verse 6. So how do we reduce this grace when we think that some people shouldn't have it? Number two, really already said it, when we think that we weren't all that bad. You know, any goodness from my life is God's grace at work in me. His spirit and his presence producing fruit from his hands for his glory. Um, to illustrate how God works in and through us, and it's nothing of our boasting. How many of you have Amazon Prime? Anybody got Amazon Prime? Amazon Prime's a great... A great gift to modern man. You can order anything with one-click ordering and have it here in two days. And for us who are impulse buyers, that's probably not a good idea. But anyway, one of the other things that comes along with Amazon Prime is the movie uh, and the video library that they give to you. How many of you are like, woo, Amazon Prime movies and, and, and videos? Yes, Joey has found a new favorite, Dennis the Menace, the old black and white version. Mr. Wilson! So I've heard that for several days straight now. Um, and so we found a lot of old TV shows. Uh, we've watched all the Little House on the Prairie seasons. We're done with that. We're now watching the Waltons. Um, and there's also another show that's on Amazon Prime. Guess which one? The Joy of Painting with Bob Ross. How many of you know who Bob Ross is? The man, the white man with the major fro, and he could paint. He could paint. I mean, he did a great job painting. He, he had happy little trees. Uh, he, he, he's famous for that phrase, uh, no, no uh, accidents. No, no, no. No messes, just happy little accidents. 
And one of our church family actually got me a shirt with Bob Ross's visage on the front with that phrase. And, and so we've watched several of the joy of paintings. And, and isn't it incredible to watch him paint? How many of you are just like, oh, it's, it's mesmerizing. But you know what I've never seen on the um, Bob Ross Joy of Painting TV show? I've never seen one of his brushes get up and about how good they did painting that painting. His fan brush, you know the fan brush, the one that he really likes? That fan brush, you don't see it sitting over there on the easel saying, yep, I've done a good job. The brush can't boast. Maybe another way to illustrate it is, how many of you got a good pair of work gloves? Work gloves? Dishwashing gloves? Yard work gloves? Welding gloves? Yeah, we got gloves for all kinds of things. But the gloves aren't doing the work. The brushes aren't doing the painting. They're simply the channels and the conduits through which the work gets done. And you know what God's saying here to us? He's saying that this work of grace in us, he's doing the work. We're simply the brush in the painter's hand. We have no source of boasting, but when we start to boast, what we're really saying in our boasting is we weren't that bad. That's what we're saying. We really didn't need God's limitless grace. And so therefore we start operating in conditionality, thinking, well, God, they don't deserve it. And God, certainly they've done way too much for them to ever be deserving of it. See, so mighty grace gets reduced. Mighty grace and continuing grace. Continuing grace. You see, this grace saves us, but this grace continues to shape us. The reason we talk about grace so much, receive his grace, grow in grace, serve in grace, is because, yes, grace is wonderful for our salvation, but it's marvelous for our transformation. And as we return over and over to the good news and hear that it is finished, what we see is that, yes, it is finished in our justification, and he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it till the day of Jesus Christ. He keeps working in us. I'm so thankful God doesn't give up on me. I'm so thankful that my wife hasn't given up on me. Even though, yes, we're in this marriage, and, that that, and, 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 and yes, we're, we're together the rest of our life, but, but she hasn't given up on me. She's still there praying for me, supporting me. This is what God does in our relationship with him. He doesn't leave us or forsake us. He saves us to transform us. Because he says that the moment we get saved, we go from being in Adam to being in Christ. And here in Romans 5, that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, you're either in Adam or you're going to be in Christ. And it deals with simply a choice of faith. Look back, look back at verse 15. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. Now, several times in that verse and the verses surrounding, it says that this is a gift. So what's the only thing we can do when a gift is offered? Receive it. Receive it. It's God's grace that saves us. It's God's grace that shapes us. And here in this passage today, we are reminded that God's grace is greater than we could ever imagine. Jesus is better than we could ever imagine. And yes, our sin, it was worse. It is worse than we can imagine. But thank God 
that we have a way out. Thank God that we have a Savior. Oh, all of us, we slip into that trap of trying to work hard to craft this public persona that is viewed by others as being good. We seek to modify our behavior so that everyone is impressed with us. We develop ways to cover up our bad points and manage to mask many of our weaknesses. We know in our conscience what we deal with. We know that there is still pride. We know that there is still anger. We know that there is still resentment. We know that there is still bitterness, envy, fear, anxiety, doubt, lust, and rebellion. And those things steal our focus from Jesus. And here's what's amazing. God sees past your mask. God sees past your Facebook profile. God sees past your public persona. He knows you better than your spouse. And he loves you anyway. And I can hear it. But the flesh roars up and says, but if we tell someone that, no, 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 no. Rest. When you really believe that, it is incredible to see the transformation happen before you. God knows what we deal with. He knows what no one else knows about us, and yet he loves us. And he desires to transform our lives. He smiles upon us with delight because we're in his son if we're saved. We're in Christ. Jesus in his work on the cross has made us righteous in God's eyes. So, here's the point. Before salvation, a clearer understanding of my sin. So if you don't know Christ, here's the point of the message today. A clear understanding of the heinousness of our sin pushes us to our knees before Jesus, asking him for his mercy and grace, and we receive it by faith. So if you don't know Christ today, the invitation is for you to go from being in Adam to being in Christ, to trust Christ, to believe that he really did do for you what he said he did. And then after salvation, a growing awareness of our sin causes us to lean into a daily dependence upon Jesus. The reality of sin keeps me humbly aware of who I was and who I now am in Christ. And I rest fully in his superabounding grace. And I do not rely upon my own systems to try to manage or modify my behavior. It's only when I truly believe this that God starts to produce fruit that is real and lasting and not fake. There's no greater joy than to be the brush in God's hand and to see him paint a masterpiece through your life. And what this does, when we really see grace for what it is, you know what grace does? It leaves you in a puddle of gratitude. It wrecks your life, and you simply worship. That's why we're here this morning, correct? We're here to worship. We're here to remember, to revel, to rest, to revel in the goodness of God, to rejoice in it, to rest, to remember. John says this, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, fear not. 
I am the first and the last. We worship. We worship.